Do you guys know which Hogwarts houses you're in? Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay, so... I'm in Ravenclaw. I am also in Ravenclaw. What about you, Robin? Oh, I'm 100% Hufflepuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good... That's so good. Yeah, apparently it's more in vogue to be Hufflepuff in Europe. So I (laughs) need to go to Italy and sip some wine, you know, by the sea and just hang out with my Huffle bros. Huffle bros. Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCavitt. What do Nicholas Flamel, Draco, Sirius, Bellatrix, and Bizarre Stones all have in common? You wouldn't be wrong if your first thought was that these are all characters or items in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books. What you may not be aware of is that they also all have real historic value. For many of us, history, fantasy, and fiction are closely linked. The roots of contemporary fantasy lie in the myths of various cultures, from the Sumerian story of Gilgamesh, to Homer's works, to the Book of 1001 Nights, to Beowulf, and a myriad of other tales. And as fantasy has grown in popularity over the last century, many fantasy authors find inspiration for their work in history. Stories like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and most recently, Game of Thrones, have become major cultural touchstones for readers all over the world. J.R.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling, and George R.R. Martin are among those who not only look to our world's history for inspiration and structure, but also create their own fully formed, unique universes full of detailed histories and lineages. This week on the podcast, we will be noticing the role history plays in the realm of fantasy fiction. Praise Gilgamesh. (laughs) Oh. What have I gotten us into? I'm a Gilgamesh fan over here, eh? No Gilgamesh fans? (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I dabble. I dabble. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that Harry Potter is probably one of the most popular fantasy fiction stories of our time, at least. And last year, in 2017, it was actually the 20th anniversary of the first Harry Potter story, which made me feel very old. Made you feel old. <laughs> getting wild. We're all getting old. <laughs> time is... Uh merciless monster <laughs> trickling through our fingers like sands through the hourglass <laughs> these are the days of our lives <laughs> well to celebrate um this anniversary which is making us feel so antiquated um the british library hosted an exhibition that was looking at the history of jk rowling's famous books ahead of it curator julian harrison said already it's the greatest selling advanced sales of any exhibition that the british library has ever mounted which is pretty cool, but I'm not surprised. I don't know. Are you guys surprised? It was so popular? Mm. Well, not have, having not read Harry Potter. Heresy. I am a little surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not surprised that tons of people wanted to go see it and that it was a great bestseller. But I am a little surprised that they had enough to be able to make an exhibition that was based on the history that's present within the books. I wouldn't have known that if we hadn't been researching this topic Mm. and doing this podcast. Yeah, they actually had a lot of different uh, objects for the public to see, like the Ortus Sanitatus. This was the first printed encyclopedia of natural history, and it dates back to 1491. 
It has uh, illustrated manuscripts with images of masters instructing students in potion making class. So very Harry Potter. Extremely. So another thing that was there was a Bezoar stone. So the stone is in a gold filigree case. As readers of the books will know, in The Half-Blood Prince, Harry saves Ron by giving him a Bezoar. Bezoar, which is a mass of undigested fiber formed in the stomach of animals and believed to be an antidote to poison, were first introduced into medieval Europe by Arabic physicians. Despite some physicians being skeptical of their effectiveness, bezoars were used until the 18th century. Fun fact, they also were in a lot of cabinets of curiosity when the first museums were getting started, and it was actually a sign of great wealth and being very worldly to have a bezoar in your collection, which is, I think is kind of cool. My cat produces bezoars on and off. You should be saving them. <laughs> you could be selling those on Etsy. I could. Huge money. <laughs> Another object were Victorian star charts. These helped influence a lot of the names that were actually used in Harry Potter. So names such as Bellatrix, Draco, Sirius, and Andromeda are all part of the astronomy that is represented in these star charts. Also, Urania's minor constellation is a centaur, and there is a centaur. Well, there's a lot of centaurs, but there's one particular one who's pretty cool and pretty pretty chill in those books. So, Rowling found inspiration for naming plants and potions in the Harry Potter books in the Herbal Encyclopedia, which was written by the apothecary Nicholas Culpepper. The book was first published as The English Physician in 1652 and went on to be published in over 100 editions. It was also the first medical book that was ever published in North America. Culpepper's aim was to inform the less educated members of society. He made his work accessible by writing it in English rather than Latin. However, he was an unlicensed apothecary and was therefore disliked by the medical community who wanted a monopoly on practicing medicine in London. In 1642, Culpepper was tried but acquitted for practicing witchcraft after coming into contact with the College of Physicians. There's a myriad of other historical references in Harry Potter. Dr. Hedda Howes, a lecturer in medieval and early modern literature at City, University of London, suggests that a number of examples of the historical and mythological influences in Harry Potter are actually drawn from the Middle Ages. In the Harry Potter books, a book that is referenced as a class book is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. As a lot of us know, it's also the name of a new movie franchise based off of the books. The idea of bestiaries was inspired from 12th century encyclopedias focused on animals such as dogs and cats to mythological creatures, including unicorns. So in the books and the movies, you'll know that Hagrid's class, Hagrid's my favorite character, he teaches care of magical creatures, which is, I feel like that would be a very fun class to be in. Yeah, and one of the textbooks that he assigns to the students is a bestiary that is actually a beast of sorts, so it's very difficult to open and read the book because it has teeth and it tries to eat you. And anytime that you want to read it, you have to fight with this book. Sounds so. like a safety concern for <laughs> school children, in my opinion. Dumbledore <laughs> had good intentions, but I wouldn't say that he was a very safe teacher. <laughs> no, he's like, go fight a lizard in the basement or whatever. Is it a snake? It's a snake, I think. I've seen the movie, I swear. Which movie? The second one. It's a snake, right? Basilisk. Basilisk. Basilisk, yeah. He doesn't send anyone to go fight the basilisk. <laughs> I mean, doesn't stop anybody either, does he? He's an enabler. (laughs) These manuscripts describe a combination of factual creatures with influences from religion and folklore and exaggerated tales from world travelers. 
Several of the creatures that Rowling uses appear first in these manuscripts, such as basilisks and phoenixes. Others, such as centaurs, are references to Greek mythology, but also might have been listed in some of these bestiaries. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which is the second movie, has two creatures from these bestiaries, the basilisk and the phoenix. Uh, The phoenix is Dumbledore's pet named Fox, and he is delightful and makes me wish that phoenixes could in fact be pets. Is Fox named after Guy Fox? Exactly. Yes. So, so Fox wants to install an authoritarian Catholic government. He wants to end all the persecution of the Catholics in the UK. <laughs> yeah, Fox is a very talkative <laughs> phoenix. He's very chatty. Does he have a little mustache and like uh, wear a mask? Definitely. Okay, I knew it. <laughs> isn't isn't the second movie one of the ones you've seen, Nick? I, I have. I don't remember the Phoenix though. Weirdly enough. It's a pretty major character. Really? Big plot point, eh? It's got a big backstory. (laughs) Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone introduced Nicholas Flamel. Flamel was a real historical figure. He was a scribe and bookseller born in 1330 in Pontoise, France, and died in 1418. Following his death, rumors suggested that he discovered alchemy while on a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. He was said to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone, which had the power to turn metal to gold. And he brewed an elixir of life for himself and his wife. And Harry Potter, Flamel is associated with both these legends. But I mean, also, obviously the elixir of life didn't work because he's dead. Or is he? Robin, (laughs) we need to find him. I mean, do we know that he's dead? We do not. It could be a tuck everlasting situation. It could. Now, I know I already said before that care magical creatures would be a very cool class, but I know, hands down, my favorite class would be Herbology. So this is one of the classes that the students can take at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry in the books. So this is teaching them how to take care of everyday magical plants and different seeds. Um, One plant that is referred to in several of the books is the mandrake. As it's described in the book, the roots of the mandrake have humanoid features and have fatal cries. They appear in medieval herbals, like bestiaries, which are a type of manuscript that has a combination of fact and fiction. They provide information on medicinal, culinary, aromatic, and magical properties within plants. 12th century herbals recommend mandrakes for medical operations to to reduce pain and induce drowsiness in patients. Another aspect of these classes is how to use plants to heal ailments and cuts and injuries and in real life people use natural magic as it were to cure ailments plant-based poultices have been used in combination with spells or charms come the 15th century such practices were considered superstitious and associated with demonic worship with the advent of the witch hunts fun lots of fun it's probably why she included it in the hogwarts stuff right mm. yeah really wanted to tie that in historically yeah <laughs> These are some examples of how J.K. Rowling has used actual historic items or books or people and incorporated them into her books. But she also creates her own histories that are completely unique to the world of Hogwarts and Harry Potter. And within that is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's one of the textbooks that the students use, and it has since spawned its own trilogy. So the first one's already out, the second one is soon coming out, and then there's going to be a third one on its way eventually. But she's also created an entire history now of North America, because that's where a lot of the textbook takes place. 
So Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is Newt Scamander. He's one of the Hufflepuffs. Pretty exciting. He's a Hufflepuff who goes to North America and just travels around the world generally, looking and finding different beasts and writing about them and having a whole, kind of like a bestiary of his own. I was going to say, kind of like a 19th century naturalist. Yeah, exactly. So he's recording all of these things and having adventures on the way. And so the first movie, at least, is about his, you know, a foray into North America, trying to return some of these beasts to their natural habitats, as well as just um, getting into different capers on his way. But being a real, a real Hufflepuff, a real nice guy, he's he's a great example of what Hufflepuffs should be. In with all of this, there's also a whole new history that's becoming developed by J.K. Rowling as she writes and helps contribute towards these books. She's also creating a whole North American component to the world of Harry Potter. And a lot of this has its own parallels to North American history. So we've looked at a lot of, well, some of the history that we've looked at has actually taken place in North America. Some of it has had to had to do with the different witch trials, but you'll see that a lot more of the histories from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them really lines up with North America a lot more obviously. So one example of this would be the Skinwalkers. She discusses Native American wizards in this whole new kind of mythology that she's creating, this new history. And these have the Navajo legend of the Skinwalker, a person who can turn into an animal who are known as Anamagi. So in part of the canonical history that Rowling has written, um, she's included and kind of explained how Native Americans in her world kind of play a role. So a quote from one of these is, A legend grew up around the Native American Anamegi that they had sacrificed close family members to gain their powers of transformation. In fact, the majority of Anamegi assumed animal forms to escape persecution or to hunt for the tribe. Such derogatory rumors often originated with nomad or muggle medicine men, who were sometimes faking magical powers themselves and fearful of exposure. So this actually is a controversial point in her writing, as skinwalkers are a part of historic and living Navajo culture. It's also controversial because it assumes that there's one overarching Native American community, which, as we all know, is far from the truth. There are over 500 different nations within North America with their own unique cultures and traditions and beliefs. So this is just another example of that generalization that unfortunately happens too often. Historian Dr. Adrian Keene notes that Rowling felt able to do this is really a part of a long history of colonialism where non-Native folks are emboldened to borrow, invent, and write about Native beliefs without ever talking to actual Native people. I was surprised when I read on Pottermore. So J.K. Rowling, as she creates new content and new, and as she builds the the universe of Harry Potter, she now has a platform called Pottermore, which is where she releases, you know, short stories and different pieces to kind of flesh out characters a bit more or give new histories. So in preparation for Fantastic Beasts, a lot of that was released on Pottermore. And that's where a lot of this kind of arose. And it's surprising to me because... When she wrote Harry Potter, she really, it doesn't seem as though she felt the need to incorporate, you know, Celtic histories and all of these different indigenous to the United Kingdom type aspects. But then as soon as she found out that she was going to bring it over to North America, that's where she went. And I'm not sure how much research or what kind of history she looked into as part of making that decision, or if it was just that she thought it would be an interesting and compelling parallel that might work really well, which, you know, obviously doesn't. 
Um, but it's, I didn't mm-hmm. expect it when it first was released and when people started talking about it. And I obviously agree with a lot of the criticism that has come up against it. Uh, it does seem like a very bold overgeneralization, which can be dangerous, as, as we all know. I wish I knew more about why she did this. Maybe it's just a concept of the exotic like to her maybe looking at it and just thinking this is a new angle that i can for one pull ideas from that i can then make content with Mm. but also it's i don't know if the the word's voyeuristic but it's it's looking at that culture and just saying oh i can mine this it's sort of what i'm getting out of it which is what's been happening basically since contact right so it is really unfortunate that it's continuing to be going in circles that this keeps happening i don't think it's great (laughs) but at least we're having a discussion about it now and she is getting flack for that yeah that's true so rowling's work in north america has tried to accurately represent weapons licensing laws in the united states according to adam winkler a specialist in american constitutional law and a ucla law professor wands would be considered weapons Rowling says, quote, uh, legislation introduced at the end of the 19th century meant that every member of the magical community in America was required to carry a wand permit, a measure that was intended to keep tabs on all magical activity and identify the perpetrators by their wands. Yeah, I see some other parallels within that as well, though. It's some kind of, I, I think she's trying to make it a little dark, but the idea of people being labeled in a way, having to having to keep tabs on different people who are magical. It's it's very similar to X Men, which is you know has its own parallels as well to the Second World War. I just I see a lot of kind of similar imagery happening throughout. Um, whether or not that's the mark that she intended, it I, it feels invoked in that quote, especially to me. It seems, it seems like that's the parallel she's trying to draw. It does. Yeah, with yeah. like a, a sort of minority group in terms of demographics and how they are then treated by the majority. Exactly. Yeah. That they, that they, you're able to visibly separate them, right? By something that is being carried on their person. Once again, Rowling is very diligent in including American history in her work. So she does reference the Salem witch trials, which she describes as a tragedy for the wizarding community due to a group called Scourers, an unscrupulous band of wizarding mercenaries of many foreign nationalities who formed a much-feared and brutal task force committed to hunting down not only known criminals, but anyone who might be worth some gold. The Scourers, according to Rowling, sound similar to Death Eaters, which readers of the books will be familiar with. The group also indulged in a love of authority and enjoyed bloodshed and torture. Catherine Howe, a historian and author of historical fiction novels about Salem, found it intriguing to look at Salem through the Potter lens. Quote, 19 people were put to death by the state legally, all done by the book, and I think a lot of people today still feel a very great sense of solidarity for the people who were accused in Salem. It raises our empathy because we don't want to imagine that our culture would do that to people, she says. End quote. So these scourers are representative of uh, the puritanical authoritarian nature of 17th century New England, but certainly across America when you're having many different, um, you can call them authoritarian, religious sects moving out of England, Britain, and coming to these new colonies. 
the societies that they built were very strict. Like we've talked about on other podcasts, they tried to limit what people did in their spare time. They tried to regulate the day. They tried to um, pretty much control every aspect of people's day-to-day lives, what people were doing. And it comes out of that Puritan um, Calvinist culture uh, from that time period. So it's interesting that she's brought that parallel into the book because it is a very real part of America's history in that period and even America's history today. Into the canon. But if you'd read the books, you would know that. (laughs) (laughs) What I do know about Harry Potter is that um, J.K. Rowling does draw on the the theme of authoritarianism and social control often. Absolutely. So not only does J.K. Rowling create her own histories within Harry Potter, things like the Deathly Hallows as a myth, or, you know, Ollivander and his complex history and the whole history that is associated with the Elder Wand and just that, you know, all the different aspects that she talks about, different people, the lives, the, the textbooks. But she really does make a concerted effort to incorporate or at least parallel her books and her canon with real world events. So those are some of these like issues that we've talked about, like the Salem Witch Trials and um, different herbology books. And it seems like her efforts are perhaps more overt when it comes to the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. I'm not sure if that's a result of considering that there may be less nuance in North America or in North American society, or if it's just that she wanted to take advantage of the rich history available to her that was so different from the UK history. I think it's that idea of the other. And I think that also plays into um, using North American native culture as kind of a crutch for her writing. It's that idea of looking in from the outside and, like you said earlier, Nick, the exotic. And I think that can be applied to the U.S. or North America in general in a broader sense, maybe. I'm just going to throw it out there that these sort of maybe less nuanced grabs from uh, North American history could be lazy writing. That's fair. (laughs) She's already pumped out like eight of these books. Seven. Seven. Yeah, seven. Seven books. Like eight. Se- well, Fantastic Beats, is that not an extra book? It's, a, a, it's a movie. It's a film. And a bunch of films. You're running out of ideas, JK. We get it, okay? It's it's fine. But you can put more time in. People don't expect things. They already love it. They love whatever you're going to write. That's just, I think that's, I actually think that that's part of the trouble that she's running into is that people eat up this universe with such vigor and excitement that there's a clamor and a constant demand for there to be more. So she feels like she needs to be creating more and putting things onto Pottermore and giving people more elaborate histories in different parts of the world. And all of this is because the fans want it. And that I think is leading to some of these mistakes happening because there's clearly a demand. There's clearly a market. She wants to deliver to the fans what they want. She wants to build these more complicated histories. But then within that it's, it's causing problems, right? She's Maybe it's not her who's writing them all entirely. I'm not sure if she has a staff that's helping her with it, but clearly it's just not getting the same amount of vetting or it's just kind of getting too out of control. It's too wide. It's, it's a big project. It's a great big undertaking, but it's not necessarily working. So I think another part of it is she is from England. She grew up with that history. She learned that history in school. She might just be less familiar with the nuances and uh, different challenges that come with the history of North America and its long history. So she might just be coming in into it with a different 
um, perspective and maybe just less immediate information. So should we just jump into some other books? We spent a lot of time on Harry Potter. We and have. some people aren't maybe huge Harry Potter fans. But there's other books out there, like Game of Thrones, that is extremely popular. All right, we'll throw you a bone, Nick. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin has stated that the biggest inspiration for his series does not come from fantasy books like Lord of the Rings, but rather a French series set in medieval France that isn't frequently read or known in the English language. Um, the seven books are titled Les Rois Maudits, The Accursed Kings, and were written uh, between the mid-1950s and 1970s by author Maurice Drouin. In a recent introduction to a newly released version of Les Rois Maudits, Martin wrote in the introduction, quote, The Accursed Kings has it all. Believe me, the Starks and Lannisters have nothing on the Capets and the Plantagenets. It is the original Game of Thrones. Dun dun dun. <laughs> According to Martin, the parallels between the books include, quote, feudal worlds, bloody warfare, a sadistic young king, a vengeful princess, and a view of a complicated plot from the perspective of less powerful characters who are caught up in the events, end quote. Martin has said that while his books have drawn from a range of historical sources and events, his story most closely follows the Wars of the Roses that took place in England during the 15th century. The War of the Roses was between two different feuding uh, royal houses. You had York, which was represented by a white rose, and a Lancaster, represented by a red rose. The Lancasters are the Tudors, or Tidir because they're Welsh, and that's why they went with Red Rose, Red Dragon, All Whales, All Day. <laughs> 24-7. Also, Lancaster and Lannister are not even that far away from each other. Suspiciously close. Very. And Stark and York, I mean, still not as close, but still pretty close. The War of the Roses was really a, a brutal, brutal event in human history. There was just inescapable violence, and it was... Uh, it was not not a, a good time to be alive in England. Wasn't a good time. No. And, and Game of Thrones has really drawn on those themes. So, speaking of books that aren't Harry Potter, and let's talk about a book that is really the original mega fantasy adventure. More popular than Harry Potter, I will argue. It survived generations. That's right. Lord of the Rings. The L OG. The OG fantasy novel, trilogy, powerhouse, J.R.R. Tolkien. No one's arguing with you, Nick. We we all love Lord of the Rings. I have ridden a horse that was one of the Rohirrim. So no. That's amazing. Yeah. I know I, I'm in your camp 100% on this. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> so Tolkien lived in the early 20th century, and a lot of his writing takes inspiration from what was around him. He was also born in England. And he used a lot of Celtic myth, actually, in his writing. The different themes from um, books like the Toynbokulin in Ireland, uh, Beowulf. Uh, he himself was a linguist, and he studied a lot of early Saxon literature. So even when you look at the languages that he's creating, like how the, how the elves speak, these sort of um, the, the world he's building is so tied in with the different Celtic and Saxon myth and legend that he studied. I think that's really cool because when you read the books and you see the maps that he's illustrated himself that are part of the books 
and the runes and things. It's very familiar looking if you've studied Saxon history or Celtic history. And it's it's refreshing. It makes it feel very real. That's what I felt when I was reading them, that because it seemed to have a little bit of like a little foot in reality just from the way that it looked, it made it much more believable for me. And I felt like that for me anyway. That's why I was so easy to buy into it. Part of why it feels so real possibly is because J.R.R. Tolkien was actually a real stickler for keeping everything that he was going to use, whether it be myth or based in history, firmly in the world that we live in. So it always had to follow real world rules. So all of his myths, any kind of dragon that he has, I mean, Smog follows classical dragon rules. And this was actually a point of contention between him and C.S. Lewis. They were very good friends and they would often trade back and forth their works and comment on each other's writing and try to edit it a little bit. And they could never agree because C.S. Lewis kind of took inspiration and he'd make dragons what he wanted them to be in his world and in his universe. Same with, um, you know, his centaurs and his fawns and everything else that he would incorporate. They were just, you know, uh, kind of like a jumping off point for him. Whereas for J.R.R. Tolkien, no, it was it was myth. You had to stay within the lines. You can't color outside the lines. You have to stick with this myth the way that it is. It's a myth that people are going to have some kind of familiarity with, and it needs to be familiar. It needs to be safe. It needs to be exactly what you expect it to be. It needs to be in the tradition, in the continuity of storytelling. This is what this really is. It's, it's a culmination of just centuries of storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an awesome trilogy. And beyond, right? He wrote The Silmarillion, which is a precursor to The Lord of the Rings. And it really fleshes out the entire creation story of that world of Middle-earth and beyond. And it's interesting because he actually viewed writing The Silmarillion as discovering and recording history rather than his own creativity developing a narrative inspired by history. So he thought that he was actually figuring it out as he wrote it. It was kind of writing itself and revealing itself to him as he was going along. Possibly this was so successful because he, again, was following tradition. He kind of knew the right parts and what should come next based off of the history and the myths that already exist in, in the Saxon history. I think it's also worth noting that not only has Tolkien created history within his books, but his books have created their own history where now you can actually study his languages that he's created at Oxford University. You can study Elvish. I want to study Elvish. That'd be amazing. So it might not be a history course, but I'm sure that they teach you some of the history of the elves and of that culture as a part of learning the language. So not only has he borrowed from history, but now we have created that and imbued that within our own culture and within our own history. Yeah, I think it's pretty fascinating that universities are going to that length even. Because when you think about it, yes, it's it's a fictional universe, it's a fictional language in a fictional universe, but it's so based in fact that that can then teach us about human history. Absolutely, yeah. And it follows so many of our linguistic rules. He's created it really within the framework that we experience our lives so that we can enter and we can actually learn it as a language and it makes sense. And it's something that we can enter into. In order for it to work, he had to have a very rich backstory and a very rich history that would support this universe. And so he didn't just write it and have it in his head, but he also fleshed it out, wrote it, and then included it so that you could refer to it to make sure that the entire book, the entire trilogy actually did make sense and follow the rules of the own world that he created. 
But this, this is also why the books are so timeless, is that they really, he's created such a in-depth world that really does have that um, basis in ancient Celtic British culture that it is familiar to us, one, but that people find fascinating. That's why the books continue to sell and people continue to read them, is that this universe is so steeped in um, myth, legend, and culture that... As well as history. Yeah, that is just so (laughs) gripping, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's certainly worth noting that the three authors that we've talked about today, J.R.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling, and George R.R. Martin, have all been inspired by Western history, even more specifically by UK history in most cases, with a bit of a dabble into North America with J.K. Rowling's more recent work. I think it's interesting that it's all happening in Europe, and particularly the UK. We didn't get a chance to talk about Terry Pratchett, but he is close to my heart. You know, he's another British author, and he's created this very rich fantasy world that has its own history, and we could talk for hours about it. And there are so many other authors that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about here today. Almost every fantasy book has a history embedded within it, to some degree. I think that these three authors that we've talked about have done better jobs, or at least are more mainstream in our understanding of how they've incorporated history. But it remains pretty indisputable that history is going to happen no matter what you write. People are going to be interested in your universe, and they're going to want a history. As humans, I think we're created and designed to crave history. We want to know what came before and be informed by the decisions that are happening. Stories don't make sense unless we understand why it's happening and why characters are making decisions that they're making. So a good story will have an element of history embedded within it. Maybe it will be myth, maybe it will be cultural, maybe it'll just be more of the roses or some other amazing UK history that you can incorporate. But it seems to be really a universal element that all good stories have history in them at some point. So the next time that you curl up with your favorite book on a couch on a rainy afternoon or otherwise with your nice steaming mug of tea or whatever else you like to have with you while you read, consider the history that you're reading in your book. Maybe it's not as overtly presented, but it's probably still there and it probably is contributing to why you're enjoying that book so much. Or maybe the lack of it is why you're not enjoying the book. But either way, we'd love to hear about some other books that you've enjoyed that also have history at play within them. So that's some of the history we've noticed in fantasy fiction, and we'd love to hear about the history that you've noticed. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Kirsty Walker, Nick Johnston, and Leanne Getty. With audio mixing by Jessica DiLorenzio. For more information about the topics we've covered, check out our website at nohistory.ca slash podcast or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.